Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 8, Josephine. France, l'armée, tête d'armée, Josephine. Napoleon's Last Words, St. Helena, 1821. I've been wanting to inject a supplemental episode in this series a few times now to discuss some of the big players in Napoleon's story, whether it be his mother Leticia, Salicetti, the Robespierre's, or even Paul Barra. All were excellent candidates but I didn't think that any were more worthy than receiving the first supplemental than as the love of Napoleon's life, Marie-Joseph-Rose Tachère de la Pagerie, the future Empress Josephine Bonaparte. But as I began writing this episode, I just couldn't stop. What I had planned to be a 10 to 15 minute supplemental ballooned to close to 15 pages worth of script. And so I decided to dedicate an entire episode to the future Empress. And you know what? I'm glad I did, because after all the research I've done regarding Josephine, she deserves at least that bit of recognition. I mentioned last week that Josephine could likely have consumed an entire miniseries all on her own, and her impact on Napoleon, as well as his empire, cannot be overstated. Many of their love letters together still exist, which gives us an intimate look into their relationship while also providing us valuable information on Napoleon's campaigns as he wrote these correspondences. She was a patron of art, and many of her collections remain in France to this day. Her style of dress, known today as the fashion portion of the empire style, was adopted by much of the high French society, drawing its influences from imperial Rome, focusing on lighter, simpler dresses, and doing away with the extravagance seen in classical French courts. She was also an amateur horticulturist, becoming a patroness of roses at the Bonaparte estate the Chateau de Maison, tending to her garden every day. And her legacy is still felt to this day, as many of the royal families in Europe presently are direct descendants from Josephine. The jewels that she adorned throughout her reign as empress remain in many of those families to this day. But despite her patronage of the arts, her love of elegance, and the sense of fashion she instilled in her imperial subjects, Josephine today is often portrayed in a less than flattering light when compared to her conquering husband. Often described as promiscuous, irreverent, and austere towards Napoleon, it has been said that she married him to fill a void in her life as a widow with two fatherless children. So which is it? Well, as is so often the case with history, it's a little bit of both and all in between. Today, we're going to do our best to tell Josephine's story and dispel many of the myths surrounding her, Napoleon, their relationship, and why she too was a silent titan in her own right. So, let's dive in and let's talk about Empress Josephine. I suppose the first thing we should do, though, is establish that Josephine's name wasn't really, well, Josephine. As I've mentioned a few times now, Josephine was born Marie-Joseph-Rose Tachère de la Pagerie. But since this was a mouthful even for 19th century French speakers, she would often go by her middle name, Rose, which was fitting given her later love for the Rose Garden that she would tend to at their chateau. It would not be until she met Napoleon that she would receive the name Josephine, the play on her second name, Joseph, which was what Napoleon preferred to call her. Dan, ever since, it has been what history has preferred to call her. 
Josephine was born on the 23rd of June, 1763, on the Caribbean island of Martinique. Her father, Joseph Gaspard Tasha La Pagerie, was the wealthy owner of a sugar plantation, and her mother, Rose Claire de Vergès de Saint-Roy, was of Irish descendants. Josephine's paternal grandfather, Gaspard, had moved to the lucrative island colony of Saint-Domingue, what is now Haiti, in the hopes of starting a lucrative sugar plantation. Mismanagement, hurricanes, and probably some bad luck along the way prevented Gaspard from achieving the wealth he likely desired, but he was still able to gain enough money to expand his plantations into nearby Martinique. And for what it's worth, Gaspard was one of the many French nobles who tried their luck at gaining immense wealth in the sugar trade in Saint-Domingue, and we'll talk all about that when we get to the Haitian revolutionary ulcer that would come to be a mighty thorn in Napoleon's imperial side. But I digress. Back to Josephine. Despite Gaspard's misfortunes, their noble lineage was enough to earn his son, Josephine's father Joseph, a spot at the royal court, and Joseph even served a few years on the court of King Louis XVI before returning to their estates in the Caribbean. But, much like his father before him, Joseph had to deal with the misfortune of Mother Nature as hurricanes further destroyed much of their plantations in 1766 when Josephine was three years old. This damaged their finances tremendously, and it was only through the intervention of a familial extramarital affair that would help save their money-strapped operation. Josephine's paternal aunt, Desiree, had begun an affair with the extremely wealthy François Marquis de Bourgnet, and through this relationship, she was able to arrange a marriage for her niece, Josephine's older sister, Catherine Desiree, to François's son, Alexander. Their marriage would have proven to be extremely beneficial financially for the Tasha family, as it would have meant that the money would have stayed with them in Martinique, giving them an opportunity to rebuild their sugarcane business. Now, on paper, it was a perfect match. But there was one problem, that pesky little thing called disease. You see, Catherine died, age 12, in 1777, before she could even board the boat bound for France, assuming she would have survived the voyage. But as the old royal adage goes... Nowhere, no problem. Now I've got a spare. And so it was, with Catherine dead, it would be Josephine who would now be betrothed to young Alexandra. In October of 1779, age 16, Josephine and her father left for Paris for her marriage. Despite their noble lineage, though, Josephine was, let's say, a fish out of water when she arrived in the French capital. Despite having known Josephine from their time in Martinique, Alexandra was appalled at her poor education her shy disposition, and her blackened, stubbed teeth, which forced her to smile with a closed mouth throughout her life. Now, there are differing theories as to what caused this, but it's likely that her chewing on sugarcane throughout her youth caused her teeth to decay. And remember, these are still the days of poor dental hygiene. Then, fun fact, one reason why so many portraits and early photos of historical figures show them with a closed mouth is because many of them had bad teeth. But these standards of the day notwithstanding, the initial meeting between Alexandra and Josephine would be a harbinger of things to come for their 15 years of marriage. But money and connections trump looks and emotional feelings, and Josephine and Alexandra were married in December of 1779. The marriage produced two children, son Eugène de Bourgogne, born in 1781, and daughter Hortense, born two years later, in 1783. When Josephine would later marry Napoleon, he took a great liking to both of his stepchildren, and Eugene would even serve in Napoleon's army during the Italian campaign we'll talk about over the next few episodes, being made an aide-de-camp. Historically, Eugene has been considered one of Napoleon's more able familial political leaders, which is saying something considering the amount that he would put on thrones throughout his imperial reign. 
Hortense, would be made a more permanent part of the family. She would later be married off to Napoleon's younger brother, Louise, a marriage which produced future French Emperor Napoleon III. But despite their financially stable life, Josephine and Alexandra did not enjoy a happy marriage, if that wasn't apparent already. Alexandra frequented brothels regularly, was physically and emotionally abusive, and would often abandon the family for weeks at a time, often on extramarital trysts. In one of these trysts, he left the family for over a year, leading to a court-ordered separation. Josephine and her two children would live alone at the upscale Penamon Abbey at Alexandra's expense, which was attended to by Bernardian nuns. Now, while infidelity was not an uncommon practice at the time, especially in arranged marriages between the nobility, Alexandra appeared to have possessed a particularly cruel side, likely some of it having to do with his military exploits prior to their marriage. So, before we go any further in Josephine's story, let's give some background on her first husband, Alexandre de Bouhanet. Alexandre François-Marie, Viscount of Bouhanet, was born on May 28, 1760, so he was almost exactly three years older than his future wife, Josephine. He, too, was born in Martinique and enjoyed the typical life of a French Creole elite, being educated back in Paris and given a military commission, as was customary. Shortly after his marriage to Josephine, Alexandre fought in King Louis XVI's army during the American Revolutionary War, serving as a division general. He served with distinction, and his military service in the future United States proved advantageous for his political ambitions back in France. But with the financial situation worsening in Paris, Bouhanet was voted as a deputy for the second estate during the Estates General in 1789. But he, like many other notable members of the second estate, were sympathetic to the revolutionary cause which quickly followed. Likely because of his military record and wealth, Alexandre served as president of the National Constituent Assembly for most of the summer of 1791 and was made a general in the Revolutionary Army the following year. Named as General-in-Chief of the Army of the Rhine in 1793, Bouhanet was in charge of the revolutionary forces who suffered defeat at the Siege of Mainz, allowing the first coalition forces to capture the city. Now, while the battle itself was a disaster for the Revolutionary Army, and indeed instilled some doubt as to their capabilities in fending off the coalition forces, it proved literally fatal for Bouhanet. In March of 1794, the Committee of General Security ordered his arrest for his failure to properly defend mines, but it was also more likely that the committee suspected him of harboring aristocratic sympathies. Now, while this is true or not is debated, but remember, this was during the Reign of Terror in which anyone suspected of even feigning aristocratic support, let alone someone doing so who happened to be of noble birth, was given an automatic death sentence. And so it was that on July 23, 1794, Alexandre de Bouhanet was executed via guillotine in Paris, one of the many thousands who would suffer the same fate. He was 34 years old and made Josephine a widow at 31. Josephine, for her part, actually tried her best to save her husband during his quote-unquote trial, despite his callous cruelty towards her, but unfortunately, it was to no avail. She, too, was eventually jailed in April of 1794 and was released shortly after her husband's execution, likely saved from certain death herself by the fact that five days after Alexandre's guillotining, Maximilien Robespierre was ousted from power and executed himself. Still, Josephine's prison stint would affect her for the rest of her life. Suffering from what we would now consider PTSD, Josephine endured horrific conditions during her four months in prison. Being unable to speak with her children, Josephine was put into a cold, dark cell in the crypts below the church of Saint-Joseph de Caen. 
They were provided minimal food and water for all uses, had no access to laboratories, and were subjected to constant abuse by the guards. Many women were also heard having sex with the guards willingly in order to become pregnant, as pregnant women would be spared the guillotine until they gave birth, holding out hope that the reign of terror would end by the time they came to term. Ironically, it was likely the harsh conditions that Josephine endured which may have saved her life, so damp and cold were the crypts, even in the late spring and summer months, that many of the prisoners were prone to disease. Josephine, sick for much the latter part of her imprisonment, was passed over for execution in favor of healthier prisoners. I guess the prison guards weren't that heartless. But in any event, the deplorable conditions she was forced to endure inevitably left her with lifelong trauma. It has often been suggested that many of the characterizations we've come to associate with Josephine, that is, that she was sexually promiscuous, that she spent lavishly and looked for a partner that could provide for her and her children, are a direct result of the experience she suffered while in prison during the Reign of Terror. Indeed, it can be difficult to completely blame her for engaging in what she did, trying to vigorously hide her suffering by distracting herself in any way that she could. But, at the very least, she was spared her life. And less than a year later, she was able to recover Alexandre's possessions thanks to the moderate Thermidorians having taken control of the National Assembly. And with the purging of the radical Jacobins, French society found itself able to live a little bit more openly for the first time in a few years. And Josephine, now a widowed mother of two, began the process of beginning her life anew. It was here that Josephine began to earn her reputation as a, how should I put it, sultry femme fatale. Wanting to ensure her financial and personal security, she had affairs with numerous leading politicians of the day, none more pertinent to our story than old friend Paul Barra. Now, while their affair didn't last much longer than the summer of 1795, it was through Barra that Josephine met Napoleon. While Napoleon initially took Josephine as his mistress, he soon fell deeply in love with her, despite her being six years his senior, an uncommon arrangement for the time. Josephine did not find Napoleon particularly attractive initially, finding his unkempt appearance and his scabies, of all things, uh, off-putting. But then again, she herself was aging, she was deeply in debt, something of which she hid from Napoleon until well after they were married, and she was also in need of emotional support, though she almost certainly didn't love Napoleon the way that he loved her. Because Napoleon, for his part, genuinely loved Josephine, but also knew that marrying her would be advantageous for his own social standing, as her nobility and <clears throat> contacts in government and social circles were good to have at the ready. So, five months after meeting, Napoleon proposed, and they were married. As Josephine lied on her marriage certificate about her age, saying she was four years younger, and Napoleon added 18 months to his age, making them roughly around the same age, so as not to arouse suspicion among the public notaries. Again, the age difference of an older woman marrying a younger man was not seen as the same as an older man taking a younger bride, especially a widow with two children. Public records were easy to forge in those days, and the revolution did away with all birth certificates. So, for all intents and purposes, Napoleon and Josephine were the same age at their marriage. Interestingly, or perhaps awkwardly, it was Barra who was Napoleon's witness for the marriage. So, yeah. But that aside, Napoleon's wedding gift to Josephine was fitting. A gold enameled medallion with the engraved words, To Destiny. Now, we mentioned earlier that it was upon marrying Napoleon that Josephine became, well, Josephine, as she had been known by the name Rose prior to their meeting. My darling Josephine, as Napoleon liked to call her. Well, let's just say that she wasn't exactly feted with the same sobriquet by his family. 
In fact, neither she nor their marriage were well-received back home at all. Because besides the shock that he had chosen a widow with two children as his bride, they also felt intimidated by her social standing, never seeming completely comfortable in her presence. It also likely didn't help that they were aware of her imprisonment, fearing that should a radical takeover of the government be reinstated, that just knowing her could make them guilty by association. But Josephine didn't have much time to dwell on what his family thought, because Napoleon was sent away to Italy two days after their marriage, a campaign we'll be getting into after the supplemental, and Josephine was left back in Paris to her own devices. While both Napoleon and Josephine were unfaithful in their marriage, Josephine was the far more culpable one than Napoleon, at least initially. There were rumors that she even slept with Napoleon's general, contemporary Lazar Hoche, up until their wedding day. And while Napoleon was on campaign to take over Italy, Josephine began an affair with a hussar lieutenant, Hippolyte Charles. And in fact, when Napoleon asked her to join him on campaign, a war honeymoon, if you will, she declined, relaying to Napoleon through Murat that she thought she was pregnant and did not want to make the journey. Now, Napoleon was overjoyed at the thought of having a child, but the rumor was likely just that, the rumor. Now, whether Josephine had a miscarriage or phantom pregnancy or was outright lying, we'll never know. But we do know that there was no child, and the timing of it all was pretty convenient considering her tryst had started only a short time earlier. But, hey, we'll let you be the judge. But when the news of the affair reached Napoleon, he was understandably furious. Charles, only three years younger than Napoleon, but a lowly lieutenant to Napoleon's generalship, likely put himself on execution's front door for the relationship. But Napoleon would spare his life, surprisingly. Josephine would continue on with the affair long into Napoleon's Egyptian campaigns two years later, and by this time, Napoleon was ready to move on entirely from Josephine, again, understandably. He filed a petition for divorce and was going to deliver it to Josephine personally as she made the journey to Egypt to accompany him on campaign. But it was intercepted by none other than British Admiral Horatio Nelson. Now, we'll have plenty of time to talk about Admiral Nelson in a few episodes, but suffice it to say, this little bit of gossip was of invaluable importance to the coalition forces who, up to this point, had had enough of getting their asses kicked by 29-year-old Napoleon. Now, the divorce itself was particularly embarrassing because it essentially portrayed Napoleon as a cuckold. Not exactly the type of image a conquering general wants to have published in newspapers all over Europe. But the British would use another affair against Napoleon in their propaganda campaign, his own extramarital affair with Pauline Fiore. Much like his conquering hero Julius Caesar before him, Napoleon would enter into a sultry affair in Egypt with a married woman. Pauline Fauré was married to a junior officer in Napoleon's army, and when she arrived in Egypt to be with her husband, Napoleon, the sly dog that he was, sent him away on campaign and courted her. Fauré would forever be known as Napoleon's Cleopatra, and it was seen by Napoleon as a way to get back to his unfaithful wife. And indeed, their marriage would never be the same after this, full of distrust. But still... Napoleon withdrew his divorce petition on the condition that Josephine and her affair with Charles, and believe it or not, she did. But Napoleon's Egyptian campaign was not all wild drama, because while back in Paris, Josephine purchased a countryside home for the family, the Chateau de Malmaison. It was here that she began her love of rose cultivation that we mentioned at the start of the episode, choosing to have it decorated in the English style, even hiring British horticulturists to help design her garden. 
With much downtime on her hands, she was able to learn much from her hired staff on botany and horticulture. And by the end of her life, she became an amateur botanist, growing close to 200 different cultivars of roses at the residence, many of which were sent to her by Napoleon while he was on campaign in the Middle East. So prolific was her rose garden that she was honored with the Souvenir de Malmaison, a light pink rose cultivar dedicated to her contribution to rose horticulture. Her passion for gardening and the arts would soon come into good use because just as her first flowers were beginning to bloom, Napoleon was making his way back from Egypt, ready to move him and Josephine from their chateau to the Tuileries Palace. Without spoiling too much of the rest of our story, Napoleon returned to Paris from Egypt a hero, his military failures there notwithstanding, but we'll get to that a little bit later down the road. He had returned to Paris on his own accord, receiving no orders to do so, and likely faced being ousted from command had the directory not been so unpopular by this point that their words counted for essentially nothing. Scheming, plotting, coup of 18 Brumaire, Napoleon has now taken his seat at the table as first consul, rewrote the constitution to essentially make himself dictator, with not-so-stage public vote on the matter, of course, and began the first period of his personal rule, which we all call the French consulate. Josephine was now thrust into the political spotlight as basically the first lady of France. Now, while this was all great for Napoleon and certainly Josephine's social standing, and indeed their political power, Napoleon, despite being largely popular with the French people, did have many detractors, particularly from royalists who saw him as, well, nothing more than a usurper. So less than a year after he overthrew the directory, he and Josephine were nearly assassinated in the plot of the Rue Saint-Niquet on their way to attend a play at the Paris Opera with friends and family. Traveling in two carriages, with Josephine and daughter Hortense in the trailing carriage, the party stopped so that Josephine could fix a silk shawl around her neck. Now the delay, while probably annoying Napoleon, likely saved their lives, as just as her carriage passed, a bomb exploded, killing several bystanders and one of the carriage horses. Hortense was also injured by flying glass as the carriage windows blew out, but miraculously, everyone else in the party survived unscathed. Josephine who had only six years earlier escaped death by a matter of days at the end of the terror, had now escaped it this time by a matter of feet. Then it's a good thing that she survived, because four years later, Josephine would be crowned empress in a lavish ceremony at Notre Dame officiated by Pope Pius VII. Napoleon, after crowning himself, placed Josephine's crown on her head and proclaimed her empress of the French. From this position, she received many of the same amenities largely granted to the French royalty prior to the Revolution. She received ladies-in-waiting, held court as empress, and was put in charge of official ceremonies at the palace, a role she greatly enjoyed. It can be said that while Josephine may not have been made out to be the best wife, she certainly was made out to be one of the great royal consorts. And with France now remodeled as an imperial monarchy, she would use her role as empress to help redesign and expand French culture all over Europe through one of her great passions, art. A true patroness of the arts, Josephine would use her position as empress to surround herself with the great artists and sculptors of the day. Having likely formed many of the relationships with these artists during her first marriage to Alexandre, she further cultivated them now as empress to expand her vision of art and fashion onto French high society. A lover of both old and new age art, she tried to incorporate all styles into what has now become known as the imperial style, officially representing what is now known as the second phase of neoclassicism. Her patronage adorned the Tuileries and the country residences that they resided in, and they influenced much of the style seen throughout the rest of Europe, even while much of Europe was at war with France. 
To be somewhat fair, though, much of the art that was on display was brought back as war loot from Napoleon's campaigns in Italy, Egypt, and elsewhere. So Josephine certainly had a lot to draw from. But nevertheless, many of France's most famous sculptures were commissioned during this period, none more so than the Three Graces, which ended up in Russia and remains there at the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg to this day, and of course, the Arc de Triomphe in 1806, following Napoleon's thrashing of Austria and Russia in the Battle of Austerlitz. Josephine would also use her love of art to expand the image of her husband through propaganda paintings. See, she wasn't that bad of a wife. But seriously, back in 1796, she had met French artist Antoine Jean Gros, who she commissioned to paint the then general in portrait. The painting General Bonaparte at the Bridge of Arcole became a major part of Bonaparte's conqueror image, and Gros would be recalled during the Empire to paint Bonaparte and other works depicting him as a victorious general being received by his defeated enemies. But while the Empress did all she could to extol the image of her husband throughout the Empire, Josephine was unable to provide Napoleon what he truly desired, an heir. And at this point, having conquered much of mainland Europe and having put much of his family on makeshift thrones across the continent, Napoleon knew that to solidify his dynastic vision for the empire, he would need an heir, preferably a son. And when it became apparent that Josephine was unable to provide one, either due to her advanced age or previous trauma while in captivity, the reasoning is lost to history, Napoleon initially began seeking for an annulment of the marriage. But by this point, both Napoleon and Josephine had become quite fond of one another distrustful to an extent still, and as we mentioned, their marriage was never quite the same after their earlier infidelities, but there was, dare I say, love present. Napoleon withdrew the annulment and named his nephew, Napoleon Charles Bonaparte, son of Louis and Hortense, to be his heir. But unfortunately, this too would not last long. Young Napoleon died in 1807, aged five from croup, with his two younger brothers still so far away from maturity, one, again, ironically being future Emperor Napoleon III, Napoleon knew he needed to look for contingency plans. While he was still dominating Europe, with war raging across the continent, he knew that his death would create a massive power vacuum in Paris without anyone close enough to him to fill it. So in 1809, Napoleon informed Josephine that he intended to ask her for a divorce and began search for potential suitors to finally produce a heir. Josephine always the one seemingly breaking Napoleon's heart, was now the one left grieving. Napoleon and Josephine divorced on January 10, 1810 in a small ceremony, described as a solemn social occasion by some. Josephine had been broadly popular among her subjects, and she was well-liked and respected at court. Many of Napoleon's own marshals denounced his divorce as a betrayal to both Josephine and God. But Napoleon, he would not be deterred. Once the divorce became finalized, in which both still pledged their devotion to one another, Napoleon would marry Marie-Louise of Austria in March of 1810, only three months after his divorce was finalized. Josephine would be allowed to retain the title of Empress, yet Napoleon once remarked that, quote, she never doubt my sentiments, and that she ever hold me as her best and dearest friend. But she would no longer be a major figure within the administration of the empire, say, for keeping her title and being named the Duchess of Navarre. She retired to her chateau, further tending to her rose garden, and remained on relatively good terms with Napoleon as best she could. She would remark privately that the only thing that came between them was her debt and spoke glowingly of her ex-husband. But with all of the drama that had been spread throughout their nearly 15-year relationship, it's hard to think that there weren't a few regrets. 
but we'll never truly know. Napoleon finally got the heir he had so long desired. Napoleon II was born in March of 1811, being given the title King of Rome. Now we'll dive into Napoleon II and his mother, Marie Louise, in a later episode, and you can be sure that we'll cover the latter in a supplemental of her own. But for now, France had finally gotten its long-awaited heir. Two years later, Josephine met the young boy, the boy she was never able to produce for her dearest husband, the boy that cost her so many tears in the final years of her life. And that, unfortunately, brings us to the sad end for darling Josephine. After the Sixth Coalition forces defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Paris and forced his first exile onto the island of Elba, they occupied the city to help pacify a nation that had raged near continuous war on the European continent for over 20 years. Leading the coalition delegation was Tsar Alexander I of Russia, and during his stay in Paris, he met Josephine. When she learned of his abdication and exile, she begged the Tsar to join him on Elba, but was rebuffed. Dressed lightly on a cooler-than-usual May Day, she contracted pneumonia and died later that same day. She was buried at the church of Saint-Pierre-Saint-Paul-Rouil, where her remains lay to this day, along with those of her daughter, Hortense. When Napoleon learned of her death on Elba, he was inconsolable. He locked himself in a room for two days and was never able to truly say goodbye to his darling Josephine. One cannot think of what went through his mind, but perhaps it had been the previous four years, believing he needed an heir to divorcing the love of his life, to finally having his heir to defeat to her death. In a modern sense, he honestly didn't realize what he had had until she was gone. Because despite the fact that his family despised her, their mutual infidelities, the marriage annulment, and his remarriage, Napoleon's last words before his own death were, France, l'armée, tête armée, Josephine. France, the army, the head of the army, Josephine. Emperor Josephine was a complex, tragic, graceful, an elegant figure throughout her life. She came from foreign noble stock and was able to navigate the difficult new world in Europe. She endured an abusive marriage, survived unthinkable torture during one of the most violent eras in European history, then found herself a mistress at the behest of many of the most important men of the day, none more so than her second husband, who made her an empress. From the corner of the Caribbean to the top of French high society, Josephine embodied a truly unique path for her place in the history books a place she deserves. I hope this episode did her some justice. Too often in history, we tend to look at many women in the lives of their famous husbands or partners and see them as just that, without really giving credence to their own personal accomplishments in a world that almost certainly was designed for them to be treated as second-class citizens. Even Cleopatra, to continue with that example, despite her cunning diplomacy, is still often portrayed as Caesar and Mark Anthony's whore to a casual historian, being used as nothing more than a puppet at Rome's beck and call. But she was far more than that. And so too was Josephine. It's important to learn her story, because in telling her story, we can learn much more from the man whose story we're currently telling. Rest in peace, Empress Josephine. Adieu. So I hope you all found this episode both entertaining and educational. I also hope I didn't give away too much as we move on through Napoleon's life, because when we return next week, 
Napoleon is about to marry Josephine, and then he's going to get a nice wedding present from the newly formed directory, the command as the head of the Army of Italy. And just as the golden medallion he presented to Josephine as a wedding present stated, he would be off to destiny.